I am talking, talking, talking to you. And the talk just keeps on coming. TalkZone.com. TalkZone.com. Now, the Dr. Robbins Show, talking about your good health. Featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW, on TalkZone.com. Here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. Welcome to the Dr. Robbins Show. We have an exciting show today. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins. I'm here with my wife, Susie Robbins, who is a social worker. I'm a neurologist, and we focused on interesting medical stories of the week, conundrums, problems, things going on in medicine that you'd like to hear. And this week is all about emails. We haven't been able to get to all of the emails in the last few weeks, and we're going to read some of the interesting emails that we've received and talk about them. If you'd like to email us, we're at Doc Larry Robbins, that's D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, at AOL.com. Our first email is, Dr. Robbins, my grandson is addicted to marijuana. How bad is that? Well, of course it depends. Uh, it's not always that bad. It depends on the level of addiction. It also depends on the underlying psychological status of your grandson. If he's quasi-normal, that's okay. If he is uh, covering up bipolar or personality disorder or something with the marijuana, that's not going to be okay even if we get rid of the marijuana. And that's the way it is for a lot of addictions. You know, the rehab places often focus on the drug, but it's the underlying psychological status that determines how people will do. We've talked about this on the show before, actually. Uh, there's this wonderful show on A&E that uh, Susie and I like called Intervention. It used to be on Sunday nights. Now it's on Friday nights. I know in Central, we're around Chicago. It's on at 9 and uh, they focus on one family, one person who needs a drug intervention. Usually it's drugs. Sometimes it's gambling or an eating disorder. And it shows how much dysfunction in the family these addictions cause, how difficult they are to deal with and expensive. But also, you can almost predict most of the time how people will do going into rehab if somebody is an angry personality disorder and they think it's just the whole world is wrong, and if the world would change, well, you know that within 10 or 20 days they're going to get kicked out of rehab and it's not going to work. So a lot of times it's the underlying psychological problem, and I think that is the way it is with young people with marijuana. It's not Obviously, it's not as bad an addiction as to heroin or cocaine, but one thing marijuana does is it kills motivation, and sometimes I'll see the 19-year-old uh, young man end up at the same place when he's 24 as when he's 19. He's going nowhere with his life. He drops out of college. He's not really doing very much. Maybe he's working part-time and just sitting around smoking a lot. So killing motivation is not great for your life in general. You, you end up in your mid-20s. What plays well, I think, at age 18 or 19 or 20 doesn't play well at 23 or 25. Families get sick of it. Friends have moved on, and uh, that's a problem. Susie, what do you think? Thanks, Larry. I think that, first of all, for many, many young people who do regularly smoke marijuana, they will not say that it's an addiction. They may say, yeah, if somebody's doing daily cocaine or drinking or binging on alcohol, they've got a problem. A lot of people that smoke marijuana on a regular basis say, I can't physically get addicted to it. 
Now, I think there's still research that shows that, yes, you can get physically addicted to it, but more likely than not, it is more of a psychological addiction. And I think that plays out with people saying, now, this is a safer drug. I can't get physically addicted to it, so I'm going to keep doing it because it just makes me feel mellow and relaxed, but I still can get everything done that I can. Unfortunately, for a lot of people that do smoke marijuana regularly, they don't get as much done as they want to. And that's where, as you were talking about, at 18 or 19, maybe it's it's working out okay. But as people get older, uh, it really does begin to intrude on what they're needing and, and, and trying to do during the day. Now, haven't you heard a lot of times from kids, well, no, you know, marijuana, it's only weed. Oh, sure, sure. You know, in fact, when I uh, worked in high schools, I did work with a lot of kids that did smoke marijuana regularly. And, you know, one comment that a lot of kids would say is, is that marijuana is so natural, it grows in the ground. How can I be harming myself with this? And again, what we need to think in terms of people smoking marijuana is the psychological addiction. Although there have been many studies that state that long-term marijuana can lead to possibly memory loss later on. What about the parents' role? I know that you worked with um, parents and kids who had been caught smoking dope in high school and they had to go through the program. Did the parents vary all over the place? Some were good, some were bad. Did they sometimes come up with excuses for their kids or deny that it was a problem? Well, I think that you could say that Parents, as people, will come up with all different types of excuses, threats, um, understanding, acceptance, as with anything else. Again, I think probably parents see marijuana as, one, being a negative because it is illegal. And, hey, it is still illegal, so we have to accept that. And from many parents' standpoint, alcohol is more acceptable, socially acceptable drug. Uh, so sometimes the marijuana just causes some parents to wonder, why are they doing this? So, you know, you really get all all reactions to it, as you would with other drugs. How about denial? Sometimes the parents say, you know, it wasn't my kid, or they make excuses, uh, or do anything to get their kid out of trouble these days. I think that's probably true, although my experience with most of the parents that I met through an ongoing high school program for kids who had um, been picked up for either smoking weed or doing some other drug or alcohol was that they were concerned about their kid and they, they didn't want to see their their kid um, doing this. There's always going to be a few parents that are in denial, but I think for the most part parents came in concerned, wanting to help. Now, some people say uh, that, well, marijuana is not particularly physically addicting, although a little bit. It's really much more psychologically addicting. Uh, how would you respond to a parent who says, well, or, or a kid says, you know, you can't really get addicted to marijuana, and I'm not addicted to marijuana? Well, and I actually have heard that many times, as I'm sure many of the listeners out there have as well. And Typically, what I would say is, you're right, it's not the same as, say, taking heroin or cocaine. But I think what marijuana does is, in some ways, sneakier. Kind of, it's 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 subtle. Whereas if somebody is taking a different drug, say cocaine, I mean, their lifestyle is going to change, their daily habits are going to change because they need to support their taking of the drug so they do what they need to so they can continue to take it. With marijuana, you can 
basically go through your regular routine. You can get up for the most part, go to school, go to work, but it's, it's, as I use the word sneakier because it's, it's subtle. You know, somebody may still go through their regular day, but probably without as much vibrancy and, um, willingness to dig in and, and work hard that day than they would be if they weren't smoking it. And by using the uh, definition, the practical definition of addiction, if it's significantly like alcohol or marijuana or shopping, if it significantly affects your social or home life, in other words, you lose your job, uh, you lose your friends, you lose your, your uh, family, that's an addiction, whether it's physical or not. So shopping, if somebody runs up 200000 in credit card debt and uh, spends, uh, they're looking at the rest of their life, they and their spouse, uh, just paying off this debt that they ran up, that's an addiction that uh, significantly affects their life. So it's not physical. Well, that's true. Typically, say if somebody is on cocaine, they will lose their job, they will go through all their money, their uh, relationships might end. Somebody that's smoking marijuana on a regular basis, they, that may not happen to them, but they may end up seeing their grades fall lower. They may end up not helping around the house where the parents see it's noticeably uh, less um, being there for their parents in terms of uh, helping around the house. Uh, so it's it's subtle, but over a period of time it can make a difference. And marijuana can lead to other addictions. We didn't used to think so in the 70s. Uh, the marijuana was much milder then. Now it is stronger, and people get used to it, tolerant to it, so they need something else to get a high. You know, and you can think about it in terms of somebody that's doing hard drugs. Typically they started out early on smoking marijuana. Not to say that if you smoke marijuana, you're going to go on to, to harder drugs, but most people that uh, are doing harder stuff started out with marijuana, which means for some they are going to continue to climb up that ladder of taking different drugs. Now, the reassuring thing is that most kids do smoke, a fairly high percentage, actually, uh, of high school kids, at least junior, seniors, and colleges, and the vast majority don't get addicted to anything, so... That's reassuring anyway. But once they are addicted, I think that they do need therapy. Often they do need rehab, not necessarily inpatient, but at least outpatient rehab, or at least intensive therapy if they're amenable to it. You know, I agree, Larry, with what you're saying about a lot of kids out there smoking marijuana in high school and certainly college. But, you know, what we're hearing and what's going on on the college campuses is alcohol is really the drug that's being misused out there with young people. Yeah, the binging is incredible. The uh, 30 drinks over uh, two or three nights, week after week, it leads to bad things. Now on to another uh, topic, the question, Dr. Robbins, how are pain and anxiety and depression connected? Well, this is a complex question. These are complicated relationships between pain, anxiety, and depression. Uh, they're genetic. You can trace a lot of this in families, particularly with anxiety and depression. But pain does fuel anxiety and depression, make them worse. And anxiety and depression fuels pain. So if somebody has daily bad headaches, it creates their own anxieties. They know they're going to have to miss Saturday night going out. They're going to have to miss work. 
Uh, a lot of this is brain chemistry. There's similarities between anxiety, depression, and certainly headaches uh, going on in the brain, particularly low levels of serotonin. And the old dictum was if we don't control anxiety, nothing's good. So we need to get control of anxiety particularly. Now, outside of medicine, Susie, what do we have for anxiety and depression? Well, Larry, there's actually a lot of things that people can do, and for many, many people, it's usually the combination of medicine and a form of therapy that can help. Certainly sometimes just one or the other, but many times people really need uh, both to really get beyond it. Exercise is another area that can really help with anxiety and depression. Um, aerobic exercise, bike riding, yoga is good. Um, even what I've started doing the last year and a half is weight training. Uh, I might go in feeling a little anxious, come out feeling much, much, uh, just feeling better all over, and I think it's just that physical activity really can um, calm me down. Yeah, I think even a few minutes a day. We're trying to get people to average maybe 15 or 20 minutes a day of something. And a lot of times once they get up there, they'll get on to 40 minutes, 60 minutes a day. And, and the consistent exercisers have something at home like a bike, treadmill, uh, have a headset for walking, and a lot of times belong to a club. Now, outside of uh, therapy, et cetera, for pain, anxiety, depression, we look for medicines that might help all of these conditions. Sometimes there are pain prevention medicines that can also help anxiety and depression. Some of the antidepressants, also some of the what we call the mood stabilizers, which are often seizure medicines like Lamictal, can help uh, certain types of moods in some people, and Lamictal can also help headaches in some people. Uh, and, of course, the pain medicines, although some people with opioids or narcotics get more depressed, uh, or with the benzodiazepines like Valium or Xanax, sometimes that fuels depression, and in some people they get depressed from those drugs. There's something called biofeedback, which is where you learn how to do some deep breathing, uh, relaxation, and some progressive muscle relaxation. Just five sessions of learning biofeedback from a psychologist who teaches it uh, can be very helpful for anxiety and for pain. But these aren't always necessarily connected. Uh, we've had people with severe, severe pain who aren't depressed uh, at all. And, uh, of course, there's people with severe anxiety and depression who don't have any pain. But often there is a connection. Susie? You know, one-on-one -on -one therapy certainly help can help many, many people. And beyond that, uh, for many people, they actually enjoy and, and get a lot out of group therapy. I know in your office, Larry, you have had um, group therapy sessions led by uh, a facilitator where the common bond was migraine headaches and how, how to deal with it. Um, how about a therapy, group therapy for new moms trying to cope with a newborn baby and going back to work or having other children in the house? Many times those are helpful. Um, not always. I, I know some people who... Um, after hearing they had breast cancer, decided to get into a um, a group session with other women dealing with with the illness as well, and 
for one of them, she said, you know what, I just don't want to be in such a um, group atmosphere with this. I'd rather deal with this with my family and, and not get into a group. So it really depends. Yeah, I think groups can really work well. We had one group that went for seven years. Uh, and, of course, they talk about their lives and all kinds of things. What you see in a group is dynamics, uh, psychological dynamics of a person come out. You see how they relate to other people, to spouses and to kids and friends within the group, and you can work on it there if, if people are skilled. Also, if the group is picked right, one person with a severe personality disorder will ruin a group. Also, online, there's some good online support groups, and um, I find the better ones are moderated. By that, I mean there's a moderator who deletes the nasty uh, posts, who doesn't let people just uh, scream at each other. Uh, if it's controlled like that, it can really work very well. There's a very good online uh, support group for headaches called migrainepage.com. That's one long word, migrainepage.com. Dot com, And uh, it's a very nice group. It's moderated. And they actually, this is where the Internet sometimes really works. Uh, the group, very nice people, met around Chicago for the second annual meeting of MigrantPage.com last April. So um, sometimes these really do work. And then there's some groups that just degenerate into, usually it's the nasty person who starts screaming at each other, and it just becomes ridiculous. Now, on another subject, I have an email here, Dr. Robbins. I see that there are new warnings on antidepressants. My son is 28, and he takes Zoloft, which is an antidepressant like Prozac, etc. What is the risk? Now, the FDA has issued a number of warnings, and some of them they've retracted. The bottom line is the antidepressants really are pretty safe overall in one age range, Basically, in people in their 20s, there's a tiny increased risk of suicidal thoughts when they first start taking them. But the overall risk uh, of depression is suicide is a fairly high risk in depression. Uh, they used to say that 10% of people with severe depression committed suicide. Some studies showed even more. And with antidepressants, that's down. So what we've seen, actually, after the FDI warnings in 2004 about suicide risk in children with antidepressants, what has been observed is an increase in the suicide rate. And what we saw from 1990 to now is a decrease in the rate of suicides because of these medicines primarily. So we don't want to undertreat uh, depression, but when somebody first goes on these medicines and it appears more important to somebody in the 20s, we do watch if they start thinking about suicide. We warn them and talk about it, but we don't want to undertreat uh, depression, which has been a huge problem. I think it's still undertreated. Susie, how important do you think it really is to treat depression? Well, I think it's absolutely imperatively important to treat it, um, not only for that person's um, Health, but also how it trickles down to family members, friends, co-workers. I mean, it has this trickle-down effect that it affects many, many people just as any other illness can. Um, and certainly, you know, we have to recognize, too, that there are different kinds of depression. Some people may get through life, you know, plugging away 
just feeling mildly down all the time but able to cope and take care of things where other people might have um, acute type depression where it comes on very strongly where they just can't get out of bed. So we have to realize, too, that, that depression has different faces to it. And there is something called kindling, like kindling logs on a fire. More depression gets more depression. That works in headaches also. So more headaches get more headaches. So there's been a number of studies. If we treat depression adequately, in one year, in three years, in five years, people are less likely to be depressed. So the reason to treat depression is now and quality of life-wise, and depression is an awful way to feel, and economically it kills people. But it's also for the future, for somebody's brain, because their brain won't kindle itself into more depression. And economically, depression costs the country at least $65 billion a year, probably a lot more in lost work time primarily, but also doctor's visits, medicines, this and that, but mostly lost work time. And that's, I think, an underestimate because that's mostly working on lost work days. But a lot of people muddle through work, they go to work, but they underperform because they're depressed. It's a horrible feeling, that 24-7 depression. The problem is we do need better drugs. The antidepressants work pretty well for 70% of people or so. They don't work at all for 20% of the people. And a lot of people get side effects. Spacey, they're tired, weight gain, uh, sexual side effects. Uh, none of which are great. On the other hand, over 200 million people have had antidepressants, and they've been out long-term now. There are several generics out. Uh, Zoloft is out generically. So is Celexa, and Wellbutrin is out generic, So and so is Prozac. Uh, so we do have uh, cheaper alternatives. Uh, they used to be $3 a pill. Now the generics are a lot cheaper. Uh, but they do have annoying side effects in a lot of people. Susie, should depressed people get into therapy? I think therapy can be good for anybody. Uh, obviously, it's it's a personal choice, and you know some people may just never want to do therapy, and I think we have to accept that and and hope that uh, between medicine and exercise um, and other healthy things that that person's going to be all right. But I think for many people, once they get into therapy and they see how helpful it is to be able to speak. Talk to somebody on a regular basis who is non-judgmental of them and really helps them to be able to figure out what's going on with themselves. It can really be enlightening. Well, we're going to take a very short break. Be right back in a few seconds with more emails. Let's return to the Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com. Once again, here's your host, Dr. Larry Robbins. We are back. This is Dr. Larry Robbins. I'm here with my wife and co-host, Susie Robbins, who's a social worker. I'm a neurologist. We talk about medical issues, stories, conundrums. Uh, we usually go over the hot medical topics of the week. And this week we're doing emails, catching up on emails. The next one is... Dr. Robbins, what do you do when nothing's working for severe pain and particularly for my severe headaches? Well, the usual way to treat headaches is outside of medicine. We talk about watching triggers like getting enough sleep, eating regularly, exercise, sometimes biofeedback, sometimes yoga, things like that. But as far as medications, there's two types of medicines. There are 
daily prevention type medicines, and then there's as-needed types of medicines. And some people do very well with medicines and some people don't. What we call refractory difficult-to-treat headaches are common. These are 24-7 daily headaches that ruin people's quality of life, and at least a million people in this country have headaches like this that qualify. Now, the general classes of refractory tough treatments for headaches that I usually talk about are the opioids, which are narcotics, the stimulants like Adderall or Ritalin, Botox injections, MAO inhibitors, combinations of other preventives, like two or three preventives at once, and sometimes we use migraine medicines that are triptans like Imitrex, Maxalt, etc., on a frequent or a daily basis, so daily triptans. Now, these are all for when people have not done well with anything, and there's pluses and minuses to each of these. The opioids, uh, I don't like to use the short-acting opioids all day, like Vicodin or codeine. They're too addicting. People get too tolerant to them. I think that the ideal person for opioids is older, after age 50, 60, because they get less tolerant to these medicines. Uh, a 20- or 30-year-old that we put on these medicines, in three months they'll need two or three times as much. At age 50, 60, 70, very often they can stay on the same dose for 10 or 20 years. And the ideal person to put on daily opioids has done well on opioids in the past. We'll use the long-acting ones like Cadian or the Duragesic patch. These are once a day or the patch is 24-7. And the ideal person has uh, does not have an addictive personality, has not had addictions, particularly to opioids. And some people do fall in that class where they do very well with opioids. The other medicines, sometimes stimulants, I've found in some people, particularly if they're tired, weight's an issue, uh, Adderall, which is a stimulant, it's been around many years, the stimulants like this, these are used for attention deficit disorder, Adderall, Ritalin. Sometimes they help everything. They help moods, they help energy, and they can help headaches. But it's definitely off-label, and you'd have to work with a physician that's familiar with these medicines. Botox injections would not be uh, just for people with severe headaches. If it were cheaper, we'd do it quite a bit more because it appears that Botox is actually one of the safer alternatives as far as drugs. I think it's probably safer than most of the drugs that we use. And Botox has been pretty effective. About 65% of people respond. You give a few shots, it takes five or ten minutes, and uh, headaches are better for two and a half or three months. So that's pretty good. But it's quasi-expensive is the problem, and insurance is very iffy. Although there's been so many studies on Botox and two more going on right now nationwide, they're trying to get an official FDA indication for Botox for headaches. We used to use these powerful antidepressants called MAO inhibitors like Nardil, etc. Sometimes they help depression when nothing else does, and they can help headaches, but they do have a lot of annoying side effects and drug interaction, so we don't use them very much anymore. Sometimes we'll use combinations of medicines, and we'll use anti-inflammatories with antidepressants and beta blockers. You always want to minimize medicine and get a balance between medicine and headaches or pain, but some people do do much better on more medicine. 
And lastly, some people do end up on frequent or daily triptans like Imitrex. We don't know if there's long-term side effects, but uh, there have not been studies showing that they do have long-term side effects. Some people, those medicines are the only ones that work for their headaches. I don't think we can overstate what these headaches, daily bad headaches, do to people's lives. You know, they don't get a lot of sympathy. They're not walking around with a cast on their arm or something. So spouses, husbands, co-workers, kids, stop wanting to hear about the headaches. Oh, you have a bad headache again. They don't really know. They can't see it. But in my experience, very few people embellish their headaches. Susie, you've had migraines before, and uh, sometimes they've been bad. Uh, can you imagine, uh, what would life be like, do you think, if it was 24-7, if you had a daily, all-day migraine? Well, I think it would be very depressing, and I, I can absolutely understand why people who have untreated migraines or migraines that they cannot get under control, it would absolutely change your life. Um, I know for myself that uh, taking triptans such as Imitrex has changed my life has been able to allow me to continue to, to have my day and not give up the day to the headache. But if I had them 24-7 and I was having to take Imitrex all day and it helped, I would be very glad that it helped. But on the other hand, I would not like having to take a trip to Anna every single day, get some funny side effects to it. And you do wonder, you know, long term, is there anything going to happen to me because of this? It's also expensive. On the other hand, when people have finally found some solution, they say to me, you know, I've had bad headaches for 20 or 30 years, and only this drug works, whether it's an opioid or triptan or whatever. And then they say, my doctor won't give it to me, the insurance won't pay for it. it that's even more depressing, too. You know, for people who have never experienced a migraine, um, you know, it hurts a lot, just as people have other kinds of pain that hurt, and it's hard to imagine it unless you've gone through it yourself. Um, but I know for myself, if I have a migraine and I can't seem to get it under control. All I really want to do is to go to a dark room and get under the covers and not have to talk to anybody, hear anything, and just lay there. And I would think some of the listeners out there who have migraines understand the feeling. You just don't want to have to think because everything just hurts too much in your head. It is amazing how well people cope. Some people cope with daily pain daily headaches and interestingly enough if you look at disability who goes on disability for pain it's actually not pain levels it's coping skills whether people are doing what we call active coping versus passive coping active is they're getting out there they're doing exercise physical therapy biofeedback stuff outside of medicine passive coping is basically laying back and saying doctor I have this pain when you give me enough drugs to cover it over and enough narcotics then I'll go back to work. There's other things that uh, predict disability, but it, interestingly enough, it's really not pain levels. Now on to another subject. Uh, Dr. Robbins, you talked about personality disorders, and I think my brother has some type of personality disorder. He's angry, thin-skinned, always mad at someone, depressed, and he thinks he's better than the rest of us. Do you, do you have any advice for dealing with my brother? Well, first let me mention I have talked about personality disorders and a whole bunch of other topics in the past on our radio show. And our shows are archived. You can listen to all the shows on my website, which is headachedrugs.com. One long word, headachedrugs.com. 
And you can email me too at doclarryrobbins, D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. Now, talking about personality disorders, it is tough. Personality disorders do create lots and lots of havoc with people and situations. They make uh, a difficult situation impossible. They make an easy situation difficult within families. Uh, there are There's a range of personality disorders, and there's different types, borderline, narcissistic, paranoid. Talking about paranoid, most spree killers are paranoid. Uh, the fellow who shot up uh, all those unfortunate people at Virginia Tech uh, was a classic paranoid personality disorder, in my opinion. Other severe personality disorders in history, um, Saddam Hussein, Stalin, Hitler, uh, and more benign personality disorders. Think of uh, Anna Nicole Smith, uh, unfortunate woman. And a lot of them tend to be angry, thin-skinned, sense of entitlement, uh, they have mood depression problems, addictions. Now, this question is about how to deal with a family member with a personality disorder, and it is tough. You have to tread lightly. I think the less confrontations, the better. Personality disorders often have their way of thinking, and you're not going to change them. So the less confronting, the better. A lot of times with a personality disorder, I'll go along with their way of thinking if it's not going to significantly harm me or if it's not crucial. So I'll just say yeah or go along or sort of agree because these people have been told their whole life that they're wrong and um, they don't accept it very well. Susie, what do you think? Well, I think it's got to be a it's a tough situation when you either have someone like this in your family or someone you deal with every day. And, you know, sometimes... It, think we can't be fully objective and even realize it when it's somebody we know very well and that we've known for a long time, uh, that they actually do have these traits or characteristics. I think for anybody dealing with people like this who do have um, some kind of personality disorder, that putting limits on their behavior towards you is one of the most important things that they, that, that you could do. For example, if somebody says, you've got to call me tonight, I have to talk to you tonight no matter what, and if you really can't talk to that person tonight, you need to be able to say, I'm sorry, I can't help you out tonight. I'd be glad to next uh, tomorrow when I can, but please don't call me tonight because I can't help you then. Limits is a great word, and boundaries. You've got to create boundaries. I know in social work and your social worker, you talk about boundaries um, and sometimes we've actually laughed that some of us talk too much about boundaries and uh, creating them. But I think it's an important concept in families. Most people have in their family somebody with a bad personality disorder. If 5 to 10% of the world has a moderate or severe personality disorder, a lot of times it, it's a daughter-in-law, son-in-law, a son, uh, a spouse, and or you're a co-worker or what ruins people's lives is a boss with a severe personality disorder. They're angry, they're thin-skinned, uh, they're judgmental, uh, and they create a lot of dysfunction and havoc. Now, how's this for... This is a typical situation I hear from people all the time. They have a nice son uh, or daughter, but they say they have a nice son and uh, he marries a nightmare. Uh, she's thin-skinned, she's angry, 
she loves you, loves you, and then the next day she hates you. She's crossing all kinds of boundaries. Uh, she'll uh, call at two in the morning or accuse her. She's a little paranoid. Is there a way of handling somebody? You, you, you don't want to lose your son in your relationship, which happens all the time where people lose their relationship because to maintain happiness in his family, a lot of times kids or uh, somebody who marries a personality disorder has to back their spouse against their parents because otherwise they hear it all the time at home. Is there a way, do you think, Susie, of handling this, or are we just in trouble with these people? Well, I don't think there's a textbook way of handling these people. I think it is really tough. Um, and as a parent, seeing a, seeing one of your children married to an individual like this, it would be very tough to see, to imagine what your kid's going through because whatever you as the mother-in-law or, father, or father-in-law is dealing with, it's got to be far worse for your child who's married to this individual again i would i would you know attempt to see them but i would not let uh this individual control me or um my life i would just try to set limits uh get together with them in benign sort of ways and hopefully be able to see my grandchildren and um and see it work out but it i think it is can be very tough you know, uh, severe personality disorders, I think, uh, take a different way of dealing with if you're separating and divorcing. There's actually a couple books on divorcing, separating divorcing from a borderline personality. It's really much different than from a regular person. If you have a boss who's a severe personality disorder, you may have to move jobs that can uh, really kill your quality of life. Or if somebody moves next to you or you move next to somebody and they are an angry personality disorder. They're they're mad. Uh, they're looking at every blade of grass, and if your kids trample on their grass a little and they're threatening to sue, uh, some people do have to move to maintain their sanity. And a- actually, with some types of personality disorders, they can be violent as well. There's more ahead after this timeout on TalkZone.com. Non-stop talk radio. What the devil is all this noise? Streaming 24 hours a day. TalkZone.com Now more of the Dr. Robbins Show with your host Larry Robbins, MD on TalkZone.com Well, on to another subject. Uh, Dr. Robbins, are there really risks to the drugs for heartburn? Well, heartburn or uh, GERD, GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, is uh, very common, and the milder drugs like Tagamet, Zantac, Pepsid, over-the-counter, uh, these are all over-the-counter now, are relatively safe, but the ones that work better are called the PPIs. These are Protonix, Nexium, Prilosec, Asifex. Prilosec is over-the-counter now, and the PPIs are very effective, but it's turned out that there are two long-term side effects. One People don't get in calcium as well to the body. So uh, in one study recently, people on PPIs like Prilosec, Nexium, etc., had a little bit more of a likelihood as they get into their 60s of having osteoporosis, and that's a serious illness. The other less common uh, issue long-term is cancer of the stomach. Now, cancer of the stomach is very, uh, fairly rare. Anyways, it's a little more likely, uh, probably, if we take away the acid for many years, which is what the PPIs do. So, 
A slight increased risk of cancer of the stomach is an issue. I think the bigger issue is the osteoporosis one. turns out a lot of people are setups for osteoporosis, need to take medicines uh, and calcium, and vitamin D. Don't forget about vitamin D. We've talked on this show before about vitamin D, and vitamin D is the crucial one to take. And I think you can make a case that even young people should be on vitamin D. There was a 2 million person army study uh, long term of vitamin D and the bottom line was the higher the vitamin D levels the less likelihood for multiple sclerosis. So of course you'd have to start supplementing with vitamin D early on. Now Susie you've had uh, some GERD and what's your experience with the medicines with uh, heartburn etc.? You know I did have the GERD and maybe you could um, explain this to the listeners. I had the GERD, but I also had a hiatal hernia. Do those work in tandem when you have one, you typically have the other? Well, a hiatal hernia is where the top part of the stomach really sits a little bit too high, and the sheet of muscle called the diaphragm uh, is a little too low relative to it, and what happens is things, uh, the acid sort of backs up into the esophagus. The esophagus is our big muscle that carries the food and drink down from our mouth down into our stomach. So it's the connecting tube. It's a big tube of muscle, the esophagus is. And acid from the stomach can back up into the esophagus, giving us heartburn. So we want to do, of course, what we can outside of medicine, eat small meals, not eat a lot at night. There are wedges that you can get in your bed. Actually, online, if you Google uh, wedges for heartburn, uh, several companies make them. It's better than getting extra pillows. Because when you get extra pillows for heartburn, all that's happening is your head is at a funny angle, crooked up, and uh, it's not really the trunk of your body, which is what we need. So people just get neck pain with that. So we need wedges. Uh, you could get an electronic bed, electric bed, that where the head goes up, and those are pretty good, and they're not that expensive. Uh, I'm not talking about a hospital bed, just an electric bed where the head and part of it can go up at an angle. Susie, what was it like really for your quality of life having heartburn? You know, I didn't have it all day long as I know some people do, but when I did get it, which was almost nightly, uh, and I will explain in a minute why I said I did get it, um, you know, it would usually be after dinner, and it would just be kind of a burning sensation in the upper part of my chest, Um and I would take, you know, the protonics and the medicines uh, that that you talked about. And it did help for a while, but it would always come back. And during the night, I would have problems. I would cough a lot, uh, and I'd have the burning sensation again. So I actually had dealt with this for years. I actually did go out. I tried the wedge under my body when I slept at night. Uh, I think it does work for some people. It was tough on me because I would get, I'd still get the neck problems afterwards. Did the wedge help your heartburn at all, do you think? You know, I think it did, but I, because it was, I felt so uncomfortable when I woke up the next morning, you know, because it's kind of an unnatural position for sleeping in. I think it helped, uh, but then I had the, the cramps in my neck, so I tended not to use it. Then I actually did get the electric bed, and that did help. But again, it's an unnatural way to sleep, and I was still feeling uncomfortable the next day from having slept in kind of a semi-sitting position. I know the electric bed 
help for TV watching. Yeah, it does. It's helpful for that. But if you know you're you're uh, inclined like that for eight hours, it it can be uncomfortable the next day. So eventually, I uh, was given the name of a of a surgeon who does a um, procedure but called the fundoplication. It was laparoscopic, where they did it where they don't have to cut. As much. That's right. And my understanding is what he did was just tighten the top part of my stomach so that the acids would not then escape into the esophagus. And it was a, um, a fairly short procedure. I did have to stay one night in the hospital. And as you said, it was done laparoscopically uh, where the cuts in my stomach were quite small. And I must say that once I got through the first few days of just... Uh, healing from the surgery, I felt great, and um, my heartburn is is really virtually gone. I don't have to take the medicine anymore. Well, that's the thing. Uh, you did get the surgery. I remember you were not a happy camper after the surgery. It is painful, but if you look at the risks of surgery versus the long-term risks of these drugs, I think... The discovery about the possible osteoporosis with the PPIs like Prilosec, Nexium, etc., has swung towards if people have severe GERD or heartburn, things aren't really helping. They need two of these pills a day. It's still not helping that much. I think thinking about surgery more than we used to is probably, uh, if we look at the long-term side effects of the medicines, it's a reasonable thing to do. You know, if the medicines are... Totally benign and safe, long-term, well, okay, we can go with extra medicine, but I don't think that's the case. They're also fairly expensive, except there is uh, Prilosec is uh, generic over-the-counter. You know, one thing I did recently hear from my doctor was that um, because when you have the GERD, it does sap your calcium. If you are someone who has a family history of osteoporosis or if you yourself have the precursor to it, osteopenia, it might be uh, something to think about the surgery because uh, it's tough enough for us all to be getting our calcium. If we're actually having a lot of it not being able to... um, stay in our body because of the um, protonics-type medicines could really be cause for concern down the road. Now, as far as calcium, um, I happen to like calcium citrate, uh, which is caltrate, particularly with D, although I think taking an extra D supplement is probably as good or better because you can take more. I like people to take at least 800 units of D a day. Uh, but calcium citrate is not constipating. Calcium carbonate, which is Tums, and a lot of the calcium supplements, uh, people are constipated, especially most people taking calcium are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and constipation can be a problem anyways. Well, a last topic, a reader, a listener writes in, Dr. Robbins, what really works, if anything, to quit smoking? Well, it's tough. You know, I've had alcoholic patients where they say they can quit alcohol, but they can't quit smoking. I think that it's uh, a very tough addiction, nicotine is. Uh, I think that group therapy, the groups, the five-week, like, smoke enders type, that they usually run for free at the hospitals every quarter or so, if you look around, can help. Uh, they meet usually once a week at night. You have lectures. That can help. Combining it with some sort of over-the-counter nicotine patch or gum, so the groups do help. 
it turns out the more attempts people make to quit smoking, the more likely they are to actually quit smoking. And interesting enough, a newer drug has come along from uh, Pfizer called Shantix, C-H-A-N-T-I-X, that I've used now in seven patients and five actually quit, which is amazing for smoking. I'm hearing very good things about this. It's a the first drug of its kind, a nicotine agonist. So it works sort of like nicotine. So maybe it could help other things in the brain. The only problem is it's a new class of medicine. So we're always a little wary about newer medicines and long-term side effects, but this is only released to be used for one, two, or three months at the most. Uh, but I, I'm very, very encouraged with Shantix. Anything that can get people to quit looks good. Susie, I know you quit smoking. What was your experience like? Well, it was painful. <laughs> this was about 10, 11 years ago that I finally quit. Um, and I did go through a smoking cessation program that, for me, really helped. Um, it was led by a facilitator, and we had about 10 people in our group. And we met a few times before we actually stopped smoking, and it was kind of a slowing down and then finally uh, no smoking. And I was so elated when I really realized that I had given, given it up for good. I would say for me... Um, we're all different, but the experience that really helped me to quit is that when I finally did was I was really ready to quit. As much as I missed the certain times of the day when I would have a cigarette, there was also such a freedom of I don't have to do this now, I don't have to stop, I don't have to go outside. Such a great feeling, and I think for a lot of people, when you're really ready to say, I just am disgusted by this, I can't do it anymore, I think it's really the time you got to go with it. Very well said. That about wraps up this show. I'm Dr. Larry Robbins with co-host Susie Robbins. You can email us at DocLarryRobbins, D-O-C-L-A-R-R-Y-R-O-B-B-I-N-S at AOL.com. My website does have past radio shows archived at HeadacheDrugs.com. That's one long word, HeadacheDrugs.com. See you next week. You've been listening to The Dr. Robbins Show, featuring Larry Robbins, MD, and co-host Susie Robbins, MSW. Learn more about Dr. Robbins online at HeadacheDrugs.com. And join us next time for more about health and medicine right here on The Dr. Robbins Show on TalkZone.com.